This happens to be one of my favorite portions of Scripture. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. And as you do, as you place a little marker there or something, I want to turn back a few pages to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. Jesus spoke about two builders, a wise builder and a foolish builder, and, and he was really putting a heavy emphasis on how we respond to his word. And I think as we, you know, we open our Bibles and we come in expectation that the Lord is going to show us something, but the key is putting it into practice. Jesus said in, in Matthew, records this in Matthew 7.24, Therefore, let everyone who hears these words of mine Excuse me, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain came down and the streams rose. And the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And I look at that wise and foolish builder, and I go, which category am I in? Which one am I in? What am I building on? What am I building with? Am I listening to the words of the Lord and applying them to my life, or am I listening to the Lord, Lord's words and trying to apply them to everybody else's life but mine? And uh, notice that the, the situation there is the same in both cases. The winds, the rain water, the streams, everything is stormy. I mean, we go through storms in life. But the wise builder finds out that when all is said and done, he's still standing and his house is still standing because he's trusted the Lord. Now, before we go into Matthew 13 in this parable of the sower and the seed, I want to make a stop at Proverbs 2, Proverbs chapter 2, because Jesus really ties Old and New Testament together in his very coming. Understand that the Old Testament is prophetic in a sense that it's painting portraits of not only what was happening historically, but what's happening prophetically and pointing to the Messiah coming. And these words in the second proverb, beginning with verse 1, My son, if you accept my words and store my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. And if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds victory in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. Notice it doesn't say whose walk is sinless. <laughs> Aren't you glad? Because we could all go home. We could just close our Bibles here and go home and say, well, I guess that ain't me. But we are blameless because of Christ. He took our sin. He took the blame. For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of the faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair in every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart. Now there's the key. If wisdom never enters your heart, well, it's not good enough to just be in your head. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, from men whose words are perverse, who leave the straight paths to walk in dark ways, who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Now, that's going to come to play in our lesson tonight, so remember that. It says, wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, okay, from those whose words are perverse. Then in verse 16, it says, it will save you, speaking of wisdom, it will save you also from the adulteress, from the wayward wife with her seductive words who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. 
for her house leads down to death and her paths to the spirits of the dead. No one who goes to her, no one, none who go to her return or attain the paths of life. Thus you will walk in the ways of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the unfaithful will be torn from it. Now, with that in mind, seeking wisdom, applying it to your heart, calling out for insight, crying aloud for understanding, we come to chapter 13 and the first words we read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, the first words we read are that same day. What same day? The same day that the Pharisees accused Jesus of doing these miracles by Beelzebub, casting out demons by the prince of demons. They're rejecting him as Messiah. When you reject Jesus as Messiah, by the way, he is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. When you reject Jesus as the Messiah, you're rejecting the truth. You're rejecting the one way, the one door. Last night in our study with Missler uh, in Genesis, Chuck Missler pointed out that there was one door in the ark. One door. There's one door to salvation, too. It's Jesus. He said, I'm the way. So if you reject Jesus as Messiah, you reject the door. That door is closed, just like it was to all those who rejected Noah's door in the ark. Actually, it was God's door. But So this same day, this is the same day that Jesus was rejected by the leaders as Messiah. This same day, Jesus went out of the house and he sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and he sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. That's amazing to me, the posture of a teacher sitting and the people standing. We, we really lost that. Um, most of the teachers that I know stand, usually behind the pulpit, and the people sit. And in these days, the teacher sat and the people stood. Not that body posture is all that critical, but when I think about the, the, um, the way Jesus taught, when I picture Jesus teaching, I see Jesus teaching very pointedly, but at the same time very gently, very calmly. I don't see Jesus, you know, taking the scroll and swinging it over his head or pounding it on the pulpit or, you know, I, I, I just, I picture Jesus talking to these people just like he would have a conversation with children or with a friend. That's a neat picture. Verse 3 says, Then he told them many things in parables. Now, we've talked about parables. You know what a parable is. It's tossing something along, something that, alongside something that you don't understand. Jesus is trying to reveal heavenly things here. He's trying to reveal the kingdom of God. And if, as we get into this study tonight, you'll realize how many things you've picked up along the way that are really messed up and in your thoughts of the kingdom. Mine too. I mean, when I think about the kingdom of heaven, I'm not thinking about it here on earth. I'm thinking about someday I'm going to die and step into eternity and then I'll be a part of his kingdom. What a messed up theory that is when you look at the scriptures. Jesus said the kingdom of God is near. It's at hand. It's here. It's right before you. In fact, if you turn back to uh, chapter 11 and look at verse 12, Matthew chapter 11 and verse 12 says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, which, you know, there weren't many days past, John the Baptist was, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. <laughs> what does that say? Well, what did we just read in the Proverbs? In Proverbs chapter 2, we just read that, you know, turning your ear to wisdom, applying your heart to understanding, and if you call out for insight, and if you cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as silver and search for it as hidden treasure, what is that? You think that's easy? The kingdom of God is, doesn't come about by osmosis. It's not like one day, all of a sudden, we, we just, ooh, we, you know, here we are in the kingdom of God. This is spiritual warfare, you guys. We're, we're in it. 
We may not be in it like some of our brothers and sisters in Christ that are going through terrible persecutions, but we're in it. The kingdom of God is... is now, now we have the leadership here in Matthew chapter 12 rejecting the Messiah. So what does Jesus do? He changes his teaching style. His whole style of teaching changes in chapter 13. Now he's going to begin to talk to them in parables. Why? Because he wants those who are seeking to understand while those that are mocking and, and rejecting Messiah, it's going to be clouded. It's going to be clouded. They're not going to get it. These parables are for the hearts of those who believe and seek, knock and ask. So here we are. He told them many things in parables, many teachings. These are called the kingdom parables. The kingdom parables. A farmer went out to sow his seed. Now everybody that's standing around here knows what a farmer is. And everybody standing around here knows what a seed is because they're living in a culture where it's an agrarian society. They make a living. They either live or die by what they plant, what they sow, and what they reap. So they all know what that means. So Jesus is going to take something very familiar now and he's going to teach them about the kingdom. A farmer went out to sow his seed and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. And some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Now notice that this isn't just soil with some rocks in it. That's what we'd think because we're from Plainfield and we watch these guys pick rocks every year. It's like they got rock gardens. They just grow right out of the ground. It's like every year they got a whole new crop of rocks and they have to go out there with trucks and tractors and end loaders and pick up these rocks and dispose of them. Now that's not what's being what's being pointed out here. It says it didn't have much soil. The picture here is there's a thin layer of soil on top of a solid bed of rock. That's the picture. This is not this is not rocky soil in terms of little little rocks or even big boulders. This is solid rock with a little bit of soil on top. Verse six the sun came up, the plants were scorched, they withered because they had no root. How can, how can a plant get root in soil that's only a quarter inch or half inch deep? Other seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, if you were living in this day and age and you heard that story, You'd be going, a farmer went out and sowed his seed. Oh, we know what that's like. And you'd be thinking, Jesus is going to talk about this big crop, this big harvest. But what does he do? He talks about four different kinds of soil, and three of them turn out to be disaster. Put yourself in the place of these people who lived and died by what they planted and what they reaped, what they harvested. Put yourself in their position. When they had a bad year, when they had a bad year of crops, it was hard. They went hungry. So when he says, as he was scattering, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Imagine the heartbreak. What? They sowed their seeds and the birds came and ate it? Well, you'd be standing out there chasing those birds away. You'd, oh, you can just feel, you can feel their hearts sink as they're hearing the story. Oh, the birds ate the seed? Well, guess what? If the birds eat the seed, there's nothing going to grow because there's no, there's no seed. And he goes on. And he said, some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil and sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Can you, can you feel the sense of despair and the sinking heart? Oh, there goes another crop. Another crop. Other seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plants. Oh, man. We're going to go hungry. We're not going to eat anything. And then he talks about the good soil. Now, his disciples came to him, verse 10. I just want you to get the picture here because 
we glaze over this stuff and we go through this and we try to apply it to our society and we go, hey, big deal. So the farmer doesn't have any crops, big deal. They couldn't do that. They didn't have that luxury. When Jesus told the story, it went right to the heart. From parables, there's a couple of things that you see here. The people with tender hearts could understand it, could receive it. The people with hard hearts rejected it. But here's a, there's kind of a third thing that I haven't mentioned yet. And that is, from parables, Jesus' enemies couldn't find any direct statement to use against them. They couldn't, they couldn't pin any statement on them at this point. Notice Jesus also answered questions with questions when he talked to his enemies, to those that were trying to trip him up. But here we are, the disciples in verse 10. The disciples came to him and, and asked, why do you speak to these people in parables? Now, you might understand this too. Back when in Matthew chapter 5-7 through 7, where we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, we made the clear distinction that the people that Jesus was talking to when he gave that message, that discourse, were his disciples. It wasn't the multitudes. This is the multitudes. These people are from every walk of life. And so the disciples say, why do you speak to the people in parables? You know, when you speak to your disciples, you speak clearly, but when you speak to the people, you speak in parables. Listen to what he replies. He says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. You see the division? We've talked about this in our other studies, but the division is the attitude. What separates us from understanding God's word and being able to apply God's word is our heart, the condition of our heart. This is an incredible statement that Jesus is making here, that the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, has been given to you. All right? Past tense. Present tense, if you're looking at this parable but not to them. To who? Who is them? Well, those that were outside of this understanding, those that, were, that, that couldn't pick up on this were the people with the hard hearts, were the people that were rejecting the Messiah. Whoever, whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Now, that's kind of confusing. When you look at that statement, wait a minute, Who, whoever has is going to be given more and, and whoever, whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. That's, that's kind of a difficult statement unless you understand that Jesus, when he gives his Holy Spirit to someone, that person has a spiritual birth. That person is a babe in Christ. Brand new creature, born again. But he's got the Spirit of God. He has a little. And because he has that Spirit of God, he's going to be given more and more and more and more. But the one who doesn't have the Spirit of God, even what he has will be taken from him. See, people who are not living in the Spirit People who are dead spiritually, what are they living for? Earthly things. Where are those going to wind up when they step into eternity? Gone. Forever. That pursuit is, is useless. You have to ask yourself at this, at this point, the disciples come to him and say, why do you speak to the people in parables? Jesus says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has, whoever has what? Whoever has Jesus. Whoever knows the Messiah, whoever has a relationship with... Ask yourself this question. How do you enter the kingdom of heaven? By faith in Jesus. Okay? That's, what it's, uh, you know, that's what's at issue here. These are known as kingdom parables. The Lord Jesus is opening up their understanding to what his kingdom is like. Jesus speaks of future things, heavenly things. And he's doing it by this parable. Listen. He says, whoever has will be given more and he will have abundance. Whoever does not have, not have what? Not have Jesus. Whoever does not have Jesus, even what he has will be taken from him. 
This is why I speak to them in parables. Now, being a part of Jesus' kingdom means very simply crowning Jesus as king. All right? If you haven't crowned Jesus as king in your life, you're not part of his kingdom. How can you be part of the kingdom of heaven when Jesus isn't the king? He's the kingdom. He's the king in heaven. So it's very simply crowning Jesus as king in your life. Is Jesus the king in your life? That makes you his subject. If Jesus is the king in your life, you're his subject. If you are his subject, that makes you part of the kingdom. You get it? Now, though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4. Now, we're not going to turn there tonight, but I want you to know just who was Moses addressing in Deuteronomy 29, verses 1 through 15. He was addressing the Israelites. He was addressing them in Moab. And Moses was carefully laying out the terms of the covenant of the Lord at Moab. Now look at that again. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. He takes that verse from Deuteronomy, chapter 29, verse 4. And this is what the, what the rabbis would refer to as stringing pearls. He would take one, that verse from Deuteronomy 29.4, he puts it with the prophecy of Isaiah, and he says in verse 14, in them, that is, those that seeing they don't see and hearing they don't hear or understand, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, you will be ever hearing but never understanding, you will be ever seeing but never perceiving, for this people's heart has become calloused. Your Bible may say waxed, waxed, gross what the King James says. Become calloused. It's all about the condition of the heart. If you're going to understand the things that the Lord is saying, it's about the condition of your heart. If you're hard-hearted, you're not going to see. You're not going to understand. This is a, this is a very revealing portion of Scripture relating to the grace of God because he's laying it out, and, and who receive it? Generally, the poor, the weak, the needy, the helpless. People that can sustain themselves and don't have any need, not a need in the world. They don't even know they have a spirit, most of them. And that's the world that you and I live in. That's the world that God has us here to touch, to shine light in, to respond to. Hmm. I want you to turn just for a second to John chapter 5. We're going to come right back here, so put something there in Matthew 13. But in John chapter 5 and verse 39, there's an interesting verse of Scripture. Because remember just the last chapter, chapter 12 of Matthew, these scribes, these Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they were saying, Jesus, we don't believe you. We have the scriptures. Well, in John chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus says this. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. See, they didn't even know that what they were reading were prophecies about him coming, and he's there, and they're rejecting him. He says, You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. They wanted to have life without the Messiah, who is the life. They wanted to have life without Jesus, who is the life. He said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Wow. So back in Matthew chapter 13, you see why he's resorting now to teaching parables. Verse 
talks about their callous heart, and then it says they hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart. I didn't trust you. I didn't know you. See, once they hear, once they understand with their heart, they'll, they'll turn, and it says, and I would heal them. As soon as a man or woman or child turns to Jesus Christ and says, Lord, as soon as they make him king, at that point, he heals them, he forgives them, he restores them. Verse 16, now, he's gone through all this about the calloused hearts, about the unbelievers, about those that are rejecting him, but then look at verse 16. Probably one of the most incredible scriptures in all the Bible. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Who's he saying this to? Well, again, verse 10, the question was posed by the disciples. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he says to them, but blessed are your eyes. Righteous men long to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. What an incredible statement. Hearing those words from Jesus, blessed are your eyes because they see in your ears because they hear. We're so blessed to have the, the word of God and if you and I can understand that we're in this category of the blessed because of what God has given us, that can make a difference in your life. It can make a huge difference in your life. To understand this parable is, is, is paramount now, and so Jesus is going to give them the understanding. In Mark's Gospel... Chapter 4 and verse 13, I'll save you a little time. You don't have to turn there. But in Mark 4, how then will you understand any parable? What's he saying by that? He's saying this parable of the sower and the seed is key to every parable, every kingdom parable that he tells. All these parables of the kingdom are tied together. And as I was studying to prepare my heart for this study, and, and, and trust me, I don't claim to know fully the meaning of even this parable, we have some understanding here because Jesus gives it and explains it. But these kingdom parables, they're deep. And I've, and I've looked at other men's commentaries and I've looked at what people are teaching about these and, and my heart was really kind of breaking because a lot of the things that the people were teaching about these kingdom parables didn't lay the foundation of, first of all, you can't enter the kingdom, you can't see the kingdom, you can't be a part of the kingdom unless you're born again. None of this is going to make sense. All Jesus is teaching at all. I believe that Jesus is teaching us that the kingdom was being set up right there, right then, in terms of if Jesus is king in your life, you're already part of the kingdom. You're already part of the spiritual warfare. You're already growing in Christ. You're already part of this. Now, he says, if you don't understand this parable, he, uh, Mark records this in 4.13. If you don't understand this parable, how will you understand any parable? Jesus says that the key to understanding all the kingdom parables is to understand this one. So here we go. You ready? Verse 17. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. Now, he doesn't specifically say at this point in that Luke clears that up, Mark clears that up. It's very clear that the seed that's being sown is the word of God. If you're not sowing the word of God, nothing's going to grow. Nothing of the kingdom is going to grow. Okay? In other words, you can't, you're not going to grow in the kingdom by experiences, by miracles, by... What, what's my evidence for that? Well, Jesus is just performing all these miracles in front of the Pharisees, and what did they say? Oh, you're just doing that by Beelzebub. The miracles did not produce entrance into the kingdom of God. Faith produces entrance into the kingdom of God. Believing God's word, okay? So he says, Listen then to what the parable means when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. Now, 
I want you to understand this because the birds that were described, they represented the evil one coming and snatching away the seed. Don't miss that because that's going to come into play in the other kingdom parables. Remember, Jesus said, if you don't understand this parable, how then will you understand any parable? This is the seed sown along the path. He clears that up. The enemy comes. The enemy comes. Our adversary steals the seed off the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word. Okay, now understand that the seed is the word of God. He hears the word and at once he receives it with joy. You know, I've seen that here. I've seen people come in here. And oh, they sit down and the first teaching they hear, it's like, oh, we've never heard anything like this in our lives. We've never heard the word of God taught this way. And I'm thinking, kiss of death, all excited, all fired up, but look what it says. The seed sown along, the, the, the one who receives the seed that fell on the rocky places is the man who hears the word, at once receives it with great joy, but since he has no root, no root. I think the root that's described there is um, very important. One of the things that we emphasize here in our Bible teachings, in fact, on, all, on the covers of all those Bible studies, those Bible teaching tapes, you'll find Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, which says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I want you to know that those four things, the apostles' teaching, which is Jesus' teaching, God's word, Fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer are what create solid roots. And this is what I've seen. People come and they'll, and they'll get all fired up and they're all excited about the Word of God. And then, well, they love it when they hear it. It's great. It's good news. But they hear it sporadically. They're not in, in, in uh, consistent study of the Scriptures. They're not in fellowship. They're not in prayer. They don't break bread together remembering Jesus and what he did at the Last Supper, which was instituted by Jesus and commanded to us to remember. They don't do any of those things, and so what happens? No roots. No roots? Okay, well, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time, and when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, and I want you to know that trouble and persecution do come because of the word, any of you who have been trying to stay consistent in your study of the Word of God and setting time aside and getting to the quiet and listening to God's voice know that trouble, root, is going to fall away. There's no doubt. How do I know that? Jesus said it. Jesus said it. I believe it. So there we have two of them. First one, you see the enemy come along and snatching it away, snatching the seed of God's Word away because there's no understanding and the seed's just laying there on the soil. Secondly, we see the one that has no root, and he falls away. Verse 22 says, The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word. And this one we deal, I think, with more than any of the others. There's four types of soil here, but this one here in our society. I'm talking about the church in the West now. This isn't quite as much a problem in, in the churches where... Uh, <laughs> Persecution is so heavy that you have to be in the Word and your faith has to be strong and you have to be in fellowship and in prayer. But it says, the one who receives wealth, choke it, making it unfruitful. Now, Jesus describes what the weeds are, what the thorns are. The worries of this life, those are thorns. Those are weeds, okay? They will choke off God's Word. If you're a worrywart, you need, how to, you need to learn how to give that to the Lord. You need how to be in prayer. You need to learn how to be in prayer. You need to learn how to express your faith in letting those things go and trusting the Lord with them. And I could sit here every time, uh, every time Seth steps on the plane to go out in California. I could sit and I could chew my nails all the way down to the cuticles, you know. And when my girls get on the bus to go to school or, when, you know, when my wife has gone shopping or, when, you know, the worries of this life and the cares... The other thing is, in terms of financially, all of us are dealing with one or the other of these two weeds. We're either dealing with the worries of this life. How am I getting myself and my needs? It's the worries of this life. The other side of that coin is the deceitfulness of wealth. 
If you have everything, if you have your IRA all set up, your bank accounts all set up, your finances are fine, everything's money's rolling in, you don't have to worry about your job or any of that. Well, hey, deceitfulness of wealth, yeah. Why? Because you begin to trust those things. You begin to trust your wealth instead of trusting the Lord. It says it'll choke it. It chokes off God's word, making it unfruitful. What is the fruit of the word of God? The fruit of the word of God is spiritual growth. Not just spiritual growth. I mean, spiritual growth in our lives, yes. But it doesn't stop there. Spiritual growth in the body of Christ. In other words, more people making it unfruitful. But the one, all right, there's three soils that don't work out so hot. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it and produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. I want you to take note of this. The quantity of the increase is in direct proportion to the quality of the soil. All right? The quantity of the produce is in direct proportion to the quality of the soil. Now, what's the soil? The soil is your heart. What's the condition of your heart? The condition of your heart is going to make all the difference in what's produced in the fruit in your life. If the condition of you might have, you know, 20, 30 years ago, accepted Christ as your Savior. You might have opened your heart to Jesus. But because you weren't in fellowship, because you weren't in prayer, because you weren't in the Word of God, because you weren't seeking and asking and knocking, you never grew up, you never matured, and as a result, there's no fruit. It's in direct proportion to the quality of the soil. The soil is your heart. Now, um, remember that verse that we read from Matthew chapter 11 and verse 12 where Jesus said, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Remember that as we go into this parable of the weeds here. I think that's going to be important. It says Jesus told another parable. So here, these are all kingdom parables. Good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the weeds sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? You ever ask this question? Why does God allow the enemy to sow deception among the truth? There's a couple of things that Jesus is trying to point out here. Jesus established his church. The kingdom of heaven, the church is part of the kingdom of heaven. And as you look at this, when Jesus is giving these kingdom parables, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or whether you're Greek or male or female or bond or free, it doesn't matter. It's part of, now you're the, a member of the body of Christ in this church age, okay? As you're part of that kingdom, I want you to understand that in that kingdom, inside that kingdom, is truth and lies. And Jesus is trying to point that out here. The enemy comes along at night and sows weeds among the good seed. But have you ever asked yourself that question, God, why do you allow deception? Why do you allow deception among the church? I, I ask that. I ask the Lord that a lot. I get so frustrated with people that I hear in pulpits, not just across America, but around the world, standing in pulpits and teaching lies and teaching heresies and teaching false prophecy. And I go, God, why do you allow it? And if I was God, which is a sure sign that I'm not, but if I was lightning or you know, whatever, whatever it took, that's me. But listen, the question is, the owner's servants, verse 27, came to him and they said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? Look at his answer. Do you want us to go and pull them up? Should we pull the weeds? No. 
he answered. Do you understand that this is part of God's plan? Part of God's plan? He said, no. Because while you're pulling the weeds, you may up, you may root up the wheat with them. God is so concerned about those that are growing in Christ, those tender little shoots in Christ. He's so afraid of losing one of those that he says, no, don't pull them out because when you're pulling those, you're going to pull out. Now, they knew what that was like. They knew about weeding their gardens, and they knew how easy it was to pull up a plant instead of a weed. Together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Pretty smart, isn't it? Now later on, later on, Jesus is going to give us uh, an account of this parable as well. He's going to explain this parable as well. So I'm not going to go in any deeper to the explanation. When you get, we get to verse 36, you'll see Jesus explains this. But I want you to understand that the wickedness that God allows is part of his plan. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm with Habakkuk. I'm, I'm, I'm just going, God, how long? How long are you going to make us watch this? But God's got a plan. Now, let me just say this before we move on to the parable of the mustard seed and the yeast. Let me just say this. Many modern-day Christians have become weed pickers. The other day I said, Jules, I said, sometimes when I'm teaching, I feel really bad about when, when, whenever the false teachers come up, whether it's in Ezekiel, our study in Ezekiel, or what, you know, and it did a couple weeks ago. It came up again. came up last week again. My heart is so torn by that that I go off. And sometimes I'm listening to the tapes. I'm listening to the teachings, and I'm going, Jewel, am I beating a dead horse here? She said, no, I don't think so. Then I started thinking about the Apostle Paul and how he named names. He, he, he named names. It's not that we're supposed to go trying to pick the weeds. You don't try to, you're not always out there trying to pick weeds. I think sometimes we're trying to, to, to clean the fish before we catch them. That's why people in the world will never set foot in a church, a lot of them, because they're kingdom. These are the wolves in sheep's clothing. These are the people that Paul was pointing out, and the Lord said, no, leave them, leave them. Remember Paul? He didn't get all excited about it either. He just said, you know what? Christ is preached. Some of it are doing for the wrong motives. Some of them are in it for filthy lucre. But Christ is being preached. Let it go. At the harvest, we'll figure it out. All right, so let's not be, let's not be weed pickers. And then he told another parable. Verse 31, he told another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of your seeds, in fact, you'll remember that Jesus used that when he was challenging the people about their weak faith. He said, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, he picked the smallest seed he could think of. I wish I had a pack of them here tonight. I'd pass them around and show you how tiny they are. You can barely see them, you know. Though it's the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants. And it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. And I'm going, wait a minute. I've, I, I understand that when it comes to herbs, that the mustard seed is one of the largest herb plants, herbal plants. Most of these most of these herbal plants, people plant them in little boxes on their windowsills. You know, they have these little, in fact, I saw one on, you can buy me one for Christmas, a little Chia, chia Pet. Chia herbs. No, I'm kidding. Don't, don't do that. But I saw the ad the other day, and they spring, you know how, and you can have your herb garden right there in your little Chia sheep or whatever it is, you know. But here's my point. Here's my point. There's some abnormal growth going on here. It says the largest of the garden plants, and becomes a tree? Now, what's up with that? That's unnatural. Mustard seeds don't grow into trees. So that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches? Now, you need to remember what Jesus just said. If you don't understand the parable of the sower and the seed, you're not going to understand any of these other parables. So I'm sitting here, and I'm looking into commentaries and stuff, and I'm hearing all these guys teaching about how this, this is beautiful growth in the church. This is about, it started out with just the 12, you know, just the 12 disciples, and boy, has that grown, and it's grown into this beautiful, I got news for you, the church is in serious trouble. Serious trouble. 
Why? Because it's got huge top growth and no roots. It's not about the Word of God anymore. It's not about fellowship anymore. It's not about prayer and the breaking of bread anymore. Now it's about nickels and noses. This whole church growth movement that I've been studying, and I just finished a book by Oz Guinness called Dining with the Devil. Incredible insight to this church growth movement. And by the way, the church that's here during the tribulation period is going to be huge. Huge. But don't you forget what the birds were that came and stole the seeds. The birds were the emissaries of the evil one. The birds were the one that came along and snatched the seeds. Now you got this huge tree with the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. That's our church. That's the church. And I think it's abnormal. I think Jesus is not inconsistent with the parables he just told. He's telling the same thing. Among the wheat, there's going to be weeds. Among the branches, there's going to be birds. He's not, he's not wavering. He's not teaching some whole new thing with this parable. All these parables are saying the same thing. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Well, wait a minute. Yeast in the Bible is not a good thing. Yeast in the New Testament is a, sign, a symbol of sin. It's supposed to be purged out, Paul writes to the Corinthians. Jesus tells the, the disciples, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees or the leaven of the Pharisees. He's talking about false teaching. Now, people look at these scriptures, and, 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 and i got to tell you, um, there was, I think it was a rabbi that was speaking with, with uh, Pastor Chuck. It was either, no, maybe not. It was a seminary professor that Chuck had years ago, Pastor Chuck Smith. And he told them that people shouldn't get into using the parables for teaching until they've been in ministry for about 30 years. And Chuck would be the first to tell you, I, I wish I hadn't done that because a lot of people are teaching that these, this is good. Ooh, good, good. Church is growing. Started out with 12, and ooh, wow, look at now. Well, there is some real growth in the church. There, there is some real spiritual growth taking place, but among that spiritual growth are spiritual weeds, spiritual birds, spiritual yeast, and I believe Jesus is warning them here. I believe these are incredible warnings to the church. Mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked through the whole dough. Now, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Now, isn't it great that Jesus would reveal these things that were hidden from the creation of the world to his disciples, to those that are asking and seeking and knocking and want to sit and listen to his teaching? That's taken from Psalm 78 too. And by the way, Psalm 78 is an incredible uh, psalm written by Asaph. And, it, and it's a historical psalm. He's going through the history of the nation of Israel. So, so check that out when he, when, he talks about, um, when he talks about, I'll open my mouth in parables and I'll utter things since the creation of the world. He, he doesn't mention Asaph as a prophet or Asaph by name, but that psalm was written by Asaph. Psalm 78 and verse 2, this is a quotation from. Then he goes back and he explains the parable of the weeds. Listen to this. He said, then he left the crowd and he went into the house. Now, remember, again, it's not like the Sermon on the Mount where he's talking to just his disciples. It's He's talking to the multitudes. So now he leaves the crowd. Now he's back in the house. He's back with his disciples. It says, he went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Hmm. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. Now, do you understand what he's speaking about here? He's speaking about the church. He's speaking about the church that he's establishing. And he's saying there are sons of the kingdom 
Those are the ones that have put their faith in Christ, who have grown. There are sons of the evil one. Those are the ones that have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And it says, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. He's the one behind it all. He's the one that's literally planting these guys within the church that are, you know, teaching false teaching, false doctrines, heresies, false prophecies. But then he says the harvest is the end of the age, end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. Hmm. Get the picture? As the weeds are pulled up, burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man, and you can look at those, um, the, those resurrections, those judgments, at the end of the book of Revelation, when you look at that white throne judgment. That's what people are being judged for. The weeds are pulled up and they're burned in the fire, and so it will be at the end of the age. Verse 41, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. If you notice that at the end of all things, when we get into the book of Revelation, when you go into the millennial reign of Christ and then beyond the millennial reign of Christ, there is nothing allowed in that new Jerusalem that reeks of sin, no evil, nothing that the enemy would sow, no tears, no deceit, no dying, no death, no sickness. Amazing. And then it says, you know, none of that will be allowed. Verse 42 says, they will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a hidden field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then, in his joy, he went and sold all he had to buy the field. See, when he found the treasure, the field didn't belong to him. When he found the treasure, the field didn't belong to him. So, he hid it again, went and purchased the field. He sold everything he had to purchase the field. Keep that in mind. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and he sold everything he had. And he bought it. So far, we've had one parable that talked about the hindrances to receiving the word of the gospel. That's the parable of the sower and the seed and the the, the different soils, all the different things that will hinder us receiving the word of the gospel. We've had two parables teaching us that there would be a battle between good and evil, even in the church, all the way up until the judgment. We've had two parables about growth and spiritual warfare among the growth. Now we have two parables pertaining to those who expect salvation being willing to venture all on their salvation. I have some people say to me sometimes, don't you think you're, you're going a little overboard with this? And I'm not ashamed to look them square in the eye and say, don't you think it's better than going down with the ship? Wouldn't you rather bail? Jesus is my life jacket. I'm not going to rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. Okay? And I'm afraid that that's what a lot of people are doing in these last days. Let's rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic as it sinks. No, let's not. Let's trust Jesus And let's do what these two guys have just done, sold everything that they have. Does that mean, like the rich young ruler, well, you know, if your possessions are are a problem, get rid of them. I'll tell you that. I'll tell you that right up front. But that's not saying that you can't own anything. But don't ever let it own you. These guys gave everything they had in order to Go after that treasure. Go after that treasure. What is the one thing that you can take with you to heaven? Besides your soul, besides your soul, what's the one thing that you can take with you to heaven? Other people. You can lead them to Christ. You can put their hand in the hand of Christ. 
And what do you think those treasures are? What do you think those rewards are that the Lord's talking about that we're going to receive? Wouldn't it be cool to be standing there on the other side of the Jordan and have people coming up to you and say, you know what, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for you. You put my hand in the hand of Jesus and then you let go. And you watched me grow. And you encouraged me to grow. These guys, they, they found the treasure and they were so, joy that, so full of joy that they sold all. This one sold all he had to buy the field. This one sold everything that he had to buy the pearl. Those who expect salvation must be willing to venture all. If you're not willing to venture all, that's, that's like trying to serve God with part of your heart. It doesn't work. It really doesn't work. Once again, verse 47. We're coming to a close here. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. And when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore and then they sat down and they collected the good fish in baskets but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is hell real? You better believe it's real. Jesus talked about hell as much or more than he talked about heaven. Even in the kingdom parables, he talks about hell. How can you talk about heaven without talking about hell? You really can't. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked? Yes, they replied. Now it's important that the disciples understand. It's important that we understand these things. How many different ways has Jesus shown us that there's going to be a separation in these last few chapters in Matthew? Do you understand? Yes, they replied. And he said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out his storeroom, out of his storeroom, new treasures as well as old. So as you learn these things about the kingdom, this is a storehouse of treasures, you guys. You're going to be able to use these in evangelism. You're going to be able to use these things and these types of things. Sometimes the Lord will give you the words even as you're speaking. You just, you're, you're his ambassador. You're his emissary. And you're speaking and you don't even understand. And out, but out of the treasures of what the Lord shows you, that's why he asked his disciples, do you get it? Do you understand this? Because you, you need to be able to understand this. And if the teachers of the law who have been instructed about the kingdom of heaven, they're like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Hmm. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? They asked. Isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? No, it's not, that's not Judas Iscariot, even though they don't say that there. That's Jude. It's believed to be Jude who wrote that little short book just before Revelation. Aren't all his sisters with us? That surprises people that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Now, of course, they weren't older than him. They had to be younger because he was the firstborn. Mary was a virgin when he was born. But Mary and Joseph had other children after Jesus was born, and I never knew that. I mean, in the church I grew up, they just they never mentioned it. Never, I never saw that. But aren't these his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas? Aren't all his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Wait a minute. They took offense at him? But Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Now it's interesting to me that Matthew records that they took offense at Jesus. Because if you remember in our study, when Jesus was addressing um, 
the disciples of John the Baptist. And he talked about, blessed are those that, don't, that aren't offended in me or don't take offense at me or don't stumble at me. Remember, John posed the question and he gave it to his disciples. John's in prison. He gives this to his disciples. He says, run and ask Jesus, are you the one to come or should we expect another? And Jesus said, I want you to go back to John and tell him the things that you see. Tell him that the blind see. Tell him that the deaf hear and the lame walk. The dead are raised. And then he said, at the end of that statement, he said, blessed are those that are not offended at me. Here's a problem. Looking at Jesus, these people that saw him grow up, knew that his mom was Mary. Okay, that posed some problems because she had, from what they considered, an illegitimate birth. Jesus had that conversation with the Jews in John's Gospel. And, they, and, and he was talking about um, his father, and they said, our father is Abraham. When Jesus was talking to them, he said, your father's the devil. And they said, we're not illegitimate. What do you suppose they meant by that? That was a slam. That was a slam that Mary and Joseph weren't married when Jesus was born. They didn't believe that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit or born of a virgin. They didn't believe that for a minute. He was illegitimate. And so now, these people in his hometown are saying, aren't these his brothers? Aren't his sisters here? Isn't this the kid that grew up down the block? So where did he get all these? And he took offense at it. Do you ever take offense at God because he's not doing something the way you would do it? I do. I'm ashamed to say that, but I do. And I'll tell you what, I'm not blessed in it either. That's a hard lesson to learn. God has a plan. He has a purpose. He's carrying out. I need to trust him. I need to trust him in it. I have no, as I sit here and I teach tonight, in fact, it's kind of scary to even say this. As I sit here and I teach tonight, I have no idea what lies ahead for me tomorrow. I have no idea. I know what I want to do. I want to go to the valley tomorrow. I want to see my brothers and sisters and my mother. I want to take my kids and jump in the car and drive over to Nina and ha- you know, have some fellowship with my family. That's what I'd like to do. I have no idea what lies ahead of me on that road. I need to trust Jesus. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. And that should be good enough for us. Not only should it be good enough for us, we should be able to look at it like these men in these two parables the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl. Am I willing to give it all up to say, I believe this? Yes, Lord, I believe you. Two things I want to end with. I got two questions at the end of Sunday morning service. A young man came up to me, and he was asking me about tithing. And because I know when I say this, and maybe somebody's listening to this by tape, and I say this, you know, you need, to be able, you need to be willing to give it all up for Jesus. I know what the first thing that goes through somebody's head is, oh yeah, give it all up to who? To you? So this guy came up to me after church, and he was asking me about tithing, and he said, you know, I heard this program on TV, and he said, um, and he said it, it kind of it troubled me because I thought the guy was scamming, but he said at the same time, it really hit me that there is something to tithing. And I said, well, there is. There really is. But I said, let me ask you one question. Was he asking you to tithe to him? He said, yes. I said, that's not biblical. If he was teaching a biblical message on tithing, he would have told you to take your tithes and take it to your local church, take it to where you're being fed. He wouldn't have asked you to send it to him. Okay? That was one question. So you need to discern. It's one of the reasons why we at Calvary Chapel never take an offering, never pressure people to give. If God puts that on your heart to give, then you give because he only honors a cheerful giver. He doesn't honor. God will not honor if you're given to him because it says I should give to him. Oh, boy, but it's such a strain. No, God's not going to honor that. In fact, that verse of Scripture that says God honors a cheerful giver, the, the, the translation really is a hilarious giver. Just give it, give it, give it, give it. And I'll tell you what, you'll never outgive God. That was one question that came up. Another question that came up 
And I know that some of us are dealing with this. He said, why is it that around Christmas time, it's the hardest time of the year for me? Why do I feel so bad around Christmas time? I'm a Christian. It should be a time of year when I would feel really good. And I said, I think I have an answer. I think I have an answer because I've spent time with the Lord on that very question. Think about this. Think about how churchy the world gets around Christmas time. And think about how worldly the church gets around Christmas time. Should that grieve you? You better believe it should grieve you. We buy in, the church buys into the ways of the world in that we have to do all the traditions, we have to spend all the money, we have to go into debt, we have to buy a bazillion pet presents because that's what you do. Hey, it's Christmas time. So the church is becoming more worldly. The world's becoming more church. Hey, you can walk into Pomida in here. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. When would you hear that in Pomida? Anytime but Christmas. So the world gets churchy, the church gets worldly. Here we are all mingling in the middle among rituals and traditions instead of around Christ. Should it grieve us? You better believe it. And so we just spent some time in prayer together after the service about those, those issues. You know, God wants all of us. And by the way, he doesn't want your money. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your money. If God needed my money, I'm telling you, the kingdom's in serious trouble. He doesn't need my money. He wants my life. He wants my life. And he wants my life at work, at play, in church, in town, you know, at school, wherever I am. Father, I thank you for this study tonight, and I thank you that you have opened up our eyes, and we are blessed because our eyes see and because our ears hear. And we feel honored tonight, Lord, because knowing that even some of the prophets long to look into these things, that's incredible. Righteous men long to know these things, and you've revealed them to us, to babes. Well, I thank you, Lord. And I thank you that we wouldn't abuse what you've given us, but that we'd apply it to our lives. We'd use it for your glory. Thank you for this study. Thank you for this night. Lord, help us to be in prayer for the body of Christ, for those in the church, and for the world that doesn't know you. Touch our hearts, Lord, and use us in a mighty way as your ambassadors, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.